In Acts chapter 9, sometimes, it's not very often, but sometimes the Spirit of the Lord will speak to a minister, speak to the pastor, and uh, pertaining to certain needs and things going on in the church. You'd have no way of knowing who will be there and who will not be there. But sometimes God will lay somebody on your heart and he'll give you a message and so you, you get up and best of your ability preach today. Today that is not the case. God has given uh, me a message. It's been very forceful on my heart for the past several days and I don't know who this is about. But I know there's somebody here in this room today that God wants to talk to you in the next few moments. So I'm going to ask everybody, everybody to open your heart and uh, let the word of God speak to you today. Acts chapter 9 verse 1, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it, will, it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. I want to give you my title for this message today, and when I do, I don't want you to run away with it, because it's not going where you think. Uh, you'll just need to bear with me for a few moments. But I want to preach to you for a little while this morning about when the hurt meets the healer. When the hurt meets the healer. Everybody say, thank God for the word. God bless you. Thank you for standing. Your patience, you may be seated. <clears throat> Paul was marked by separation. We've mentioned this in our past several sermons, and I'll not go into it nearly to the degree that we have in the past couple of Sundays, but Paul was marked for separation. It was a separation that went beyond the ordinary. In Romans chapter 1 verse 1, Paul, he said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, he said, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace. Perhaps when the common man saw Paul dressed almost shabbily, living his life among the poor, they might have taken him for what he appeared to be. But when they came to know him, 
they found an unequaled intensity about his mission and calling. But that was not always so with, with Paul. For actually, and as all of you know today, this was the terrible and feared Saul of Tarsus before he became the powerful Apostle Paul. The tremendous capabilities of his mind stretch into an understanding that was unrivaled by his peers. They sat in utter amazement as Saul would quote whole portions of Job and Isaiah and Ezekiel and then enlighten them as to the content. He was a student who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, Gamaliel who was the greatest teacher of the law in that era. He found himself challenged by the remarkable young student, this Saul of Tarsus. But there was something so contrary and adverse about this Saul of Tarsus. As intelligent as he was, he lived in ignorance and unbelief. That's his words, not mine. The finest of minds, the best in education, the finest of books, and yet this man lived in spiritual darkness. Listen carefully. It brings a chill to the soul to realize that here in this room right now are those who week in and week out attend this place of worship. They are seemingly involved in worship and all the trappings of the church and never have really understood the importance of being filled with the Spirit of God and doing the will of God. I make that statement primarily to our young people. For it was this law of God that Paul could reason out so well, that he could debate with such mastery, that he could teach with such skill, that he could preach with such intensity and feeling. But all of it to Paul was to be so full of life and yet so empty so full of passion, yet so empty of emotion, so full of conviction, but no conversion, so full of concepts, but void of love, so full of hope, and yet so troubled. But all of that was about to change. It changed on the day that the persecutor met the persecuted. I want to say quickly in passing this morning, that it is amazing at how much biblical knowledge is sitting in this room today. It amazes me that we understand, or we say we understand, biblical principle and concept, but our lives and our attitude does not always reflect what we claim we know. It is astounding to me that Paul could literally quote whole books of what we now call the Old Testament. He claimed to be well-versed in the, in the law of Moses. As a matter of fact, most people attribute him as the author of the writer of Hebrews. And it is astounding to me when he heard that sweet voice out of heaven that day said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul looks up to the sky and says, Who are you? With all of his knowledge of God, he never really 
knew God. One of the most prolific statements I believe that he made, in my opinion, is what he wrote in the book of Philippians, that I may know him. I believe Paul came face to face with his creator and soon be savior that day for the first time in his life. Even though he held in his hands on a daily basis and could quote uh, the word of God and could quote the Holy Scripture, he never really knew the author. But it changed. All of that changed the day the persecutor met the persecuted. For you see, this great Saul of Tarsus hated the young church that was born in Acts chapter 2. As of yet, it was only two or three years old, but it was growing quietly in Jerusalem and spreading across that known part of the world. At first, the authorities particularly the Sanhedrin court, the Pharisees, and so on, had been inclined to persecute it, but having checked with the teachers of the day, decided to let it live because they were confident that it would die as quickly as it had been born. It was sort of a truce that developed between the church and the teachers. And under the advice of Gamaliel, the leaders quietly observed and the Christians made as little offense as possible But the church has never and never will be able to keep a truce with any government for any reason. For locked up inside of the true apostolic church is a world-conquering drive that forces it to reach out to everything that it comes in contact with. I want to say to you today, I'm glad to be a part of the church of God. I'm glad to be in the kingdom of God. I'm glad to be born again, filled with the Spirit of God, baptized in Jesus' name. I'm glad to know where I'm going. I'm glad to know that God's got His hand on my life. I'm glad to know He's got my footsteps. I'm thankful for the church today. Somebody clap your hand and shout yes. After a short while, there arose a man in the apostolic church of Jerusalem who was just as aggressive because the Bible said that he was full of the Holy Ghost. On that fateful day, he stood up to preach with force, with power, And with anointing, his message led to his execution. The offenders of the church herded him to the outskirts of town and hurled stones on him until he had been killed. Standing at the edge of that horrific scene was Saul of Tarsus. He stood there as an accomplice with his unruly gang of murderers. Unknown to Saul was his life's full purpose right in front of him. The pile of robes at his feet and with his eyes riveted on that bloody yet serene face of Stephen kneeling with words that would reach Saul's ears and pierce his heart. Stephen said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. It was Saul's zeal on this occasion that probably secured him a seat among the Sanhedrin court where he would soon uh, find him embarking on, the, on a fight against the early church. Terrible were the scenes that followed. Saul rode from synagogue to synagogue, from house to house, 
dragging men and women out and throwing them into prison and giving them over to their punishments. The church at Jerusalem was broken in pieces and those remaining were scattered out throughout the countryside. Saul threw himself into the persecution of the church with unmatched intensity convinced that he was doing God's work. Well, Paul heard that Damascus had become a safe haven for the church. He pursued northward with a letter of approval in his hand and the intent of murder in his heart. He embarked on a road that would forever mark him. It's amazing to me that Paul felt like he was so in the will of God doing what he was doing. He had nearly completed his journey, having crossed through the wilderness and now moving into the hills of, of northern Galilee, he began to ride the lush valley watered by the Abana and Farpar rivers. It's about high noon. All is quiet. And the one single event that changes Saul's entire life comes about. A blinding light from heaven, and you know the story, slammed him to the ground. And the stupefied friends of the Pharisee heard a roaring that they could not understand. Saul heard what they did not hear, and he saw what they could not see. That burning light of vision blinded him that he entered into Damascus, not at the head of the group, no longer bent on schemes of violence and persecution, but led by the hand as if he were a prisoner. And there for three days he fasted, prayed, passed some 72 hours in darkness and silence, alone, alone, with God, getting acquainted finally with the God that he professed to know so much about. God changed Saul of Tarshish into the Apostle Paul. He falls down a sinner but rises a saint. He falls down an unbeliever but rises a champion. He falls down a hater of the gospel but rises an apostle. He falls down a blasphemer, but rises a martyr. He falls down a hater of the Savior, but rises to say that for him to live is Christ. So listen very carefully this morning. What caused this mark of blindness in the life of Paul? What caused it? I asked you earlier when I announced my title, not to run away ahead of me because I was probably going somewhere that you wouldn't think. What caused this mark of blindness in the life of Paul? I want to talk to some church members here for a few moments. If this mark of blindness had been caused by disappointment, then this would be the mark of failure. If this mark of blindness were some kind of punishment, then it would be the mark of sin. If this blindness that was put on Paul, if it were the culture that he lived in, then this mark would be of education. If it were caused by suffering, then it would not be authentic. For some men suffer, and for their sufferings, they're separated from God, not brought to God. So what was it 
that caused this mark. Paul affirms later, as a matter of fact, he told the story three or four times in the book of Acts, what happened to him that day. Listen to pastor this morning. He said very clearly that this mark of blindness put on him that day was caused by Jesus. Jesus did it. When Paul asked that infamous question, Who art thou, Lord? The voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You're not persecuting people. You're persecuting me. I know it to be true. I'm born and raised in Pentecost. Cut my teeth proverbially on the back of a Pentecostal church pew. And I have observed for years since I was a child. I remember hearing my parents talk about it not often, but once in a while. Convinced. People are sometimes convinced that they're doing the Lord's work, even if it causes the destruction and demise of others. And when we embark on such a journey, God starts allowing things to happen in our life that's not always pleasant. I know what I'm talking about this morning because I've been a recipient of some of those times. Paul affirmed that this mark put on him was caused by the Lord Jesus. He gained this mark by surrendering his will to God's will. His ultimate day of separation came that day on the road to Damascus. You must understand with me this morning. Paul was born and raised in the church. Paul was uh, a student of the Word of God. He was astute at quoting the Word of God. He had, had committed so much of it to memory. And somehow, in some convoluted way, never bothering to get to know the author of the law that he had committed to memory, not bothering to get to know Jesus, in some convoluted way, he felt justified along with the primary religious world of that day to let's go after this young church in Jerusalem Let's destroy them. Let's wipe them off the face of the earth. But then some of the teachers, Gamaliel being one of them, said, No, let's let it live. Let's not stir the public up again. We just had the Jesus crucifixion, and we don't want to stir everybody up. That church will go away, and we will be back in our rightful place as religious leaders. And so somehow or another, they feel honored to oppose the church somehow. It's the will of God and it's the purpose of God for their life. Paul being in the middle of that. But what Paul gained that day by traveling to, on the road to Damascus, what was the path of persecution became to him the path of submission. And this is what I'd like for everyone here today to understand. 
I know sometimes that things happen in our lives. It can happen in our homes. It can happen in our marriage. It can happen in our job. And when it's sad, and the most sad, is when it happens in church. But sometimes we are the victim of hurt. We get hurt badly. But it is important and it is necessary that everyone understand here today that we must discern what this is all about and why has it come upon our lives. People have asked for years, is why are children born with certain deformities? Why are children born uh, with mental retardation? Why do bad things happen to good people? Those questions are being asked every single day the world turns. And they've been asked since man has been created. I don't have the answer to that question. But I do know this. My God does. In some kind of way, in all of this process of life, God has a purpose and God has a destiny for every person on this planet. And it is our responsibility to learn how to trust Him. It is our responsibility to learn how to trust Him. Even when we're sinking in the lowest depths of hurt and despair, it is imperative that nothing breaks our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to hold to His hand. I want to cling to His Spirit. I want to wrap my heart around the Word of God and say, God, I will follow you no matter where you lead me. I don't know why families break apart. I don't have the answers to all of that. I don't know why people leave the church. I don't know know why people backslide. Most of the time, 90 probably, 90% of the time it involves a hurt. And probably other than that, it's a desire for worldliness. Everybody here today has been hurt. It is important for us to dig beneath the surface. It's important for everybody here today to dig beneath the surface and ask God, what are you saying to me? What are you trying to tell me? God, I want you to speak to me. I remember, and I'm not going to rehearse this whole story, but we don't have time anyway. And if the truth is known, you're probably not really interested. But 2006 was probably one of the most trying times of my life along with Sister Murph. She was hit by a car just blocked down the street from the church. And uh, after that, we announced a building program. A third of our church people left. We were hurting bad. So what I decided to do, instead of running, running from God and standing around pouting, I decided to run to God. I decided that I would go to the church every day, no no matter how long it took, I was going to go every day until God spoke to me about what was going on in my life. That was in 2006. In 2007, I did everything I knew to do for some 40 plus days of praying, seeking God, fasting some during that time, that God began to head us in the direction that we are now. I wanted to quit the pulpit in the fall of 2006. Sister Murphy and I talked about it. I'll resign. We can't do this anymore. We were in a church location. 
Our building was located in a place that did not invite growth. There's no room for expansion. Uh, it's hard to get people to come out. And I was going to quit. I told Sister Murphy I was going to quit. She said, okay. I called my old employer, last employer I had, told him my background, reminded him. He said, we're looking for people like you. Send me a resume. And when I hung up the phone, this is the only way I know to say it. It's like proverbially speaking, God hit me in the back of the head with a board and said, what do you think you're doing? And that's when I decided that the path that I was on was sanctioned by God. I was still in his hands. God still had his arms around me. It's the darkest day of my life. We had spent 15 years of blood, sweat, and tears in this church. And I just couldn't do any more. I was tired. I was burnt out. And I started going to that little church in Baker, that little building every, every day. On the first day of 2007, I went that morning and some 40 days after that. Every day. And it was not until mid to late February that God began to speak to me and get beneath the surface and let me know the path that I was on was ordained of God and he had my future in his hands. I want somebody to know here today. And again, I don't know who this is for. Now maybe you understand my statement at the beginning. I don't know who this is for. I don't have a clue. But I do know there are some people here today that's been hurt badly all throughout your life and you've never been able to understand of why. You know, when you've got life by the tail, so to speak, and you're on the path that you know beyond any shadow of a doubt God has you on it. I mean, you're doing the will of God. I mean, you've got letters in your hand to go kill people that don't agree with you. It's got to be the will of God. And so you're on a path. Don't think for one minute that God did not have Paul on that path. Paul was never so in the will of God as he was that day. Now, I'm not so naive to say that God couldn't have knocked him down anywhere. But on that day, on that road to Damascus, after Paul's brief encounter with Stephen, God put him on a path that would forever change his life. The thing that we resist is when that light comes barreling down out of heaven and you realize, I really don't know the God that I've been serving all these years. I really don't know him. And when something happens and you're flat on your back and you're staring up into heaven and saying, God, who in the world are you? And why are you doing this to me? It's a moment of reality. But this is what I've come to say today. and I want everybody to listen. This will change your life if you'll listen. If you can get your head around it. <clears throat> Paul affirmed that that mark was caused by Jesus. God did this to me. He let it happen. But this is what I want you to hear. Only God can heal the wounds that he makes. So you can go to therapists and counselors. You can take medication. You can do whatever you want to do. 
But if God has you on a path and you've experienced a substantial amount of hurt in your life, only God can heal that hurt. And you have to come to him for that to happen. Everybody understand that? Paul's blindness prior to his conversion was caused by God. God used blindness to cause Paul to see. And God was the only one that could heal Paul's blindness. I don't care where he went. No matter how many doctors he went to, how many specialists, how many surgeries he had, it didn't matter. God put that on him. And God was the only one that could heal it. We need to understand that concept today. I realize that we're not running and dancing and shouting like we were a couple of Sundays ago. But God is talking to somebody here this morning. He's put you on a path. And you're resistant. You think you're doing the will of God. But God has you on a path. And there are some hurtful things that's happened. And you can't get your head around it. And you're going everywhere but to Jesus for the answer. So God uses trials to mark our lives with marks of commitment. When these wounds begin to mark our lives, we cannot afford them to allow us to become infected with bitterness, to be torn by jealousy, to be crippled by malice and wrath, to be destroyed by resentment, to be hobbled by anger, nor to begin to harbor the works of darkness in the deep recesses of our soul. You can't afford for that to happen. I've known church people all of my life that this has happened to. God put them on a path and they don't want to submit to that path. And so they get hurt and God causes that hurt to bring them to him. When you're hurt, you go to the doctor. When God hurts you, he wants you to come to him. He don't do it to be mean and to be harsh, but he wants something out of your life and you're not willing to give it to him. <clears throat> so he has to do something to get your attention. So he allows things to happen. He allows things to happen. But instead of people coming to God, they get bitter. They get jealous. They are crippled by malice and wrath. They try to undermine the church. They try to undermine the pastor. They've been hurt. And they're looking for people that they can get sympathy and empathy from. From other people that's been hurt. When the point is, is you're, you're having the most life-changing, significant God moment you could ever have in your life. And it's imperative that you discern that as a child of God. Never, never, never for a moment think that your darkest trial, your most difficult task, the most hurtful situation of your life is without purpose. There is indeed purpose in the pain that God allows men to walk through. The crucial question in Acts chapter 9 is uttered from the lips of Saul. Lord, now that I know who you are, what would you have me to do? That's the question. It's simple, isn't it? But boy, it's hard to understand. It's hard to get a grasp. It's, it's, it's hard to get your head around it. It's, it's hard to see the, the will of God when times are hard and dark. But you question, 
Lord, who art thou? And he says, I'm Jesus. The next question is, what would you have me to do? The question is personal. It's to you. It's not, Lord, what do you want my family to do? It's not, Lord, what do you want the church to do? Not, what do you want the person across the aisle to do? It's, what do you want me to do? What must I do? Listen carefully. One may expect that God wants men and women to do something so great and so fantastic after they meet with Him. And oftentimes it it paralyzes people. I am terrified. There's people here today on a very simple lesson, uh, on a simple level. Excuse me, you could you could teach a Sunday school class. You could be involved in Grace Reach. You could you could be involved in any of our uh, departments of, of church. We have some 15 or 16 of them. You could be involved in any of them. But you are so terrified. Listen to pastor. You are so terrified that if I say yes to the will of God for my life, that God is going to call me to be the next greatest evangelist and I'm going to have to preach to 8 million people tomorrow. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? If I say yes to God, he is calling me to the Congo next week, and I'm just not going. Listen to biblical precedent about that issue. It was interesting to me that somebody raised this very question. At camp this week, was visiting with somebody at, at our place on the campground, and they said, you know, it, it's terrifying sometimes to say yes to God because you don't know what God's going to ask you to do. a shame to have such a lack of confidence in God that he will not put more on you than you can bear. But notice Bible precedent. Jacob, after meeting God in a dream of angels going up and down a ladder and God himself at the top of that ladder, rose up the next morning, built an altar, and continued on his journey to Laban's house. Worked for Rachel for seven years and got Leah and had to work another seven. God didn't ask him to go conquer the world. Jacob submitted to the will of God, and little by little, day by day, year by year, the will of God began to blossom and bloom in his life. Naaman, oh, the captain of the guard of Syria, was simply sent to the Jordan River, dip seven times, get cleansed of your leprosy, and go home. That's it. about the fisherman that Jesus met when he just simply said, come follow me. These were men who were going to convert the world, but Jesus gave them three and a half years to prepare. Y'all understand that. The rich young ruler came to the Lord expecting some great sacrifice, and Jesus said, okay, good, go home and sell out and give to the poor. That's all I need you to do is just go help somebody. If you'll stand with me this morning, I'm reaching with everything I can this morning. I'm reaching with all of my might.
Some of you may already be past the question of who art thou, Lord? But you just can't muster up the courage to say, what would you have me do? There's people here today with the call of God on your life, and you're terrified. You know it, but you're terrified. I can't do it. I said the same thing, man. I ran from God for some 10 years. I knew I was called to preach when I was 15 years old. I didn't start till I was 25. I didn't want to. I was terrified. I can't get up in front of people and wail and scream and act ridiculous sometimes. And I can't do that. I'm weird and I have all these emotional issues and have all these problems. I can't do that. And God said, yes, you can. Submit to my way. And I will not ask you anything to do that I won't prepare you to do. And so when you're prepared, then you'll have the confidence. You'll be okay. Be okay. It all begins, and it began this way with Paul, the one who was astute in the law of Moses and could quote it backwards and forwards. For him, it began the same place it does everybody. Begins in a place of repentance. Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutes. Okay, what would you have me to do? I give up, I surrender. And Jesus said, go to Damascus and sit there for three days in the dark and I'll tell you what you need to do. But when you get your eyesight back, buddy, you're going to be a different man. It was a process. It's a process. But it begins... At repentance. David said, and he gave us the model for repentance, Have mercy on me, O God. According to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge that my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee. And thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, he said, and sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sin. Blot out all my iniquities. Create within me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors, I'll do what you want me to do. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Thou God of my salvation, my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my lip, my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desire not sacrifice, else I would give it. You delight not in burnt offering the sacrifices of God or a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou will not despise. There's people here today. You've been hurt. It could have been yesterday. It could have been last week. It could have been 20 years ago. It doesn't matter. 
But until you say, Who art thou, Lord? And what will you have me to do? That hurt will never go away. The hurt has to meet the healer. And if God is the author of the hurt, then he's the only one that can heal it. We used to sing an old song, and I'm concluding. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching. Watching for you and for me. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading? Pleading for you and for me. Why should we linger and heed not his mercies? Mercy! For you and for me. Time is now fleeting. The moments are passing. Passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering. Deathbeds are coming. Coming for you and for me. Oh, the wonderful love he has promised. Promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon. Pardon for you and for me. Come home. Come home. Ye who are weary, come home earnestly, tenderly. Jesus is calling. I want you to come home. There's someone here today that's fighting your own personal thorn in the flesh. You go to therapists and counselors and doctors and you take medication and you never ask, God, who are you and what do you want me to do? You're hurting today. Until today, you've probably never given thought to the fact that it just might be God. I could spend a long time here today telling you stories and giving illustrations. But I believe the Word of God has sufficed. There's people here today that need to say yes to the will of God for your life. As I say sometimes in jest, if God wants you to stand on your head and stack greasy BBs and whistle Dixie, you should ask him to show you the spot and you'll go ahead and get started right now. It's a submission thing. And that hurt won't go away till you submit, till you submit. But I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, okay? You'll live the rest of your life with your hurt. I've stood and looked at the dead face of people in their own casket that never could become what God wanted them to become because they never could get past the hurt. And the hurt was put there by God for a submission purpose. Say yes. Just say yes. And your world changes. It's happened for me, and it's happened to other people across this building that I've heard your testimony. Just say yes. Just say yes. Phil Elwood did it last fall, I believe it was. Been away from God for more than 33 years. Some hurt came to his life. Several things happened, and he finally decided, the only way I'll ever learn how to deal with this is go to the one that can heal it. He's the only one. He's the only one. I want to open up the front of this building this morning. If you want to come stand, you're welcome to do that. If you want to find a place to kneel, you're welcome to do that. But I'm going to ask every person in this building today to put your future in the hands of God and be willing to say yes to Him.
whatever it is he wants to do with your life, to say yes, to say yes. I'm going to invite everybody to come. Everybody come. Everybody come. Everybody come. Just say yes. If you say yes to him, the healer starts healing. 